So Money Episode 645, Sheila Kolhetkar, staff writer for The New Yorker and author of Black Edge. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Ever wonder how Wall Street really works? I mean, really. Welcome to So Money, everyone. I am your host, Farnoosh Tarabi, and we keep it real on this show. We take you behind the scenes when we can to demystify money and finances, and today is no exception. You know, we see how Wall Street is portrayed in dramatic movies like Wolf of Wall Street and The Big Short, and of course, the iconic movie Wall Street with Michael Douglas. And personally, I'm obsessed, addicted to the Showtime show Billions. Raise your hand if you're with me. I know you are. But how accurate are these portrayals, really? Well, today we go behind the scenes a little bit thanks to our guest and her groundbreaking reporting. Sheila Kolhatkar is a staff writer for The New Yorker and has published her first book called Black Edge, Inside Information, Dirty Money, and the Quest to Bring Down the Most Wanted Man on Wall Street. We're not talking about Bernie Madoff. This book details the story of billionaire trader Stephen A. Cohen and the rise and fall of his hedge fund, SAC Capital. It is the largest insider trading investigation in history. And this is the kicker. Cohen was never charged. We will dive into all of this with Sheila, as well as her background as a former hedge fund analyst herself. How did that experience bring her to her role today as an investigative business reporter? As I mentioned, she is currently a staff writer for The New Yorker, where she covers Wall Street and Silicon Valley, the economy and national politics. She also writes the magazine's financial page and is a regular contributor to NPR's Marketplace. She's an incredible journalist, and I'm, and I'm honored to have her on the show today. Here we go. Here's Sheila Kolhatkar. Sheila Kolhatkar, welcome to So Money. It's great to connect with you. It's great to be here. I've been a real fan of your work, been reading your byline in so many important pieces over the years. And so uh, really excited to now get you on the Skype and talk about your latest creation, which is Black Edge. It's a book that debuted earlier this year, uh, kind of looking at the behind the scenes of one of the most incredible investigations in insider trading in U.S. history. And it's about billionaire trader Stephen A. Cohen, his rise and fall of his hedge fund SAC Capital. This was a book that I would suspect was very difficult to write, Sheila, because you didn't get a chance to talk to Stephen, did you? I certainly did not. And I knew from the outset that it was very unlikely that he would cooperate with me because I really started reporting the book in earnest in 2013 when the legal case surrounding him and his firm uh, was very much unresolved. I mean, it was actually in the thick of the case. There were new um, charges being brought against his employees and former employees over the course of that year. So I knew that there was no way his lawyers were like, you know, going to tell him, oh, yes, 
sit down and cooperate with this investigative book about everything that's gone on at your firm when he was facing the possibility of criminal charges himself. At what point did you realize, I need to write a book about this? Wasn't there already enough reporting on this? And didn't it almost seem like uh, once he, that he didn't even go to jail, right? Well, of course, in the end, yes, it turned out that his firm, <laughs> uh, his firm, SAC Capital, was indicted and shut down, and he paid almost $2 billion in fines. But he himself was never charged. So what uh, was unresolved for you as a writer, as a journalist? Where did you want to begin your story? And what were you hoping to find that maybe uh, had not been widely reported or reported at all? Well, when I started out, of course, the, the resolution of the case wasn't known. And in fact, many of the publishers I spoke with did ask about this. What are you going to do if he doesn't go to jail? And of course, I knew um, as a former hedge fund analyst, because that's that was sort of the job I had at the beginning of my career before I became a journalist. Um, and I also knew as sort of a long form storyteller and writer that this is a story of our time. I mean, it 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 was sort of a juicy narrative with a lot of drama and intrigue and really fascinating, flawed, brilliant characters. And um, I thought that was really important just in terms of holding my attention while I worked on the book. And, um, you know, but I also knew it really touched on some bigger themes that are really important. For example, uh, the rise of this class of extremely wealthy uh, billionaires and centi-millionaires who have emerged from finance from hedge funds in particular. Uh, these people, I think, are largely unknown to the broader public, but many of the the, the new wealth that's come out of the hedge fund industry um, has created the, the, the new kind of class of um, political donors and major philanthropists and um, people who are affecting our society in ways that are not always known. So I thought it would be really helpful for people to see uh, just how a hedge fund works and some of the things that can potentially go wrong. Right. And there are many movies and, and series on that touch on this. There's a lot of fascination from the public about this. We've all watched Wolf of Wall Street, The Big Short, Billions is a very popular series on Showtime. Um, where does this book kind of fit in the public's curiosity? Like, what is this going to feed other than, of course, giving you the behind the scenes of this very almost like unbelievable industry, right? Like, how do these people actually make money? How much, why is it so much money? Um, and then, of course, the, your book also discusses like the fact that there's a very gray area as to how they are allowed to make money and uh, what they can get away with. Um, but what were you hoping this book would actually, um, you know, introduce for the first time maybe to this audience that's already kind of already curious about Wall Street and hedge funds and the billions? Well, so this um, this era, I, I would say approximately the last 20-ish years, uh, it's the first period of time where we've seen the emergence, again, of these incredibly wealthy multi-billionaires who have made their money through financial speculation. These are people... Um, who have amassed sort of historic generational wealth, not by inventing products or inventing uh, medicines or creating new technology that people uh, around the world are buying. Uh, they they don't build companies. They don't lay railroads. They're not mining magnates. I mean, these are all 
things that in the past have have um, led to enormous fortunes and influence in society. You know, these are people who take money and place bets in the market and make more money out of it. And um, and that's that's new. That's a new thing in our society. And Wall Street overall um, generates an enormous amount of wealth for a relatively small group of people. Uh, but in fact, the, the that sector of the economy does not create as many jobs as you would expect relative to the wealth it generates for the people sort of running hedge funds, for example. Um, so I thought that was just really interesting to explore. And what does that look like? And, uh, you know, just another broader sort of societal question um, arose for me because I, as I was reporting this book, I just I came across one after another of these young, ambitious hedge fund employees uh, most of them were men, frankly, um, but a few women. But these were young people, people in their 30s, uh, who had come out of the best university programs this country has to offer. These were people with um, PhDs in math and engineering and biosciences um, and business degrees from Ivy League colleges. And they were all flocking into the hedgeman industry to make, you know, make a few million dollars really quickly. And again, I thought, well, why – why is that a good allocation of intellectual capital in our economy? Does that make sense? Um, what do you, you think? Know, Does people- it make sense? Because some of these people will spend their 20s making the millions and then maybe go and do something more passion-driven or purpose-driven. I think some of them do that, and I certainly applaud them. But I think often it is very hard once you're in that world and you're making that kind of money to walk away from it. Um, I certainly – I have heard that from people over and over again. And you see that with people even like Steve Cohen, who just can't retire. I mean, it's like almost a compulsive thing. Um, But I guess if you were going to design a society and an economy in such a way as to maximize your assets, um, I don't know if you would you would allocate that much intellectual brain power to financial trading. I, I just don't think it makes sense. And given the scale of the problems we have uh, in our economy, you know, income inequality, the opioid crisis, climate change, right. education, we need our best people helping <laughs> to tackle those problems. And of course, some people from the financial sector do try to do that. But, um, you know, I just think these are bigger questions that are worth thinking about. I mean, really, money is kryptonite to some people, right? And then that's, that's the bottom line is that that is uh, more attractive than uh, winning a Nobel Prize. Yes, and I can certainly understand the allure of um, you know enormous amounts of money. Uh, it does buy you many beautiful things, beautiful works of art. I mean, Steve Cohen. This is, this is a very familiar pattern for many um, sort of very successful hedge fund entrepreneurs that they they become very wealthy and then they become interested in acquiring um, Picasso paintings for 150 million dollars. And I, I cannot blame them. That that certainly um, is appealing. You had mentioned you started in hedge fund as an analyst yourself, was there a moment in that career time frame for you that you thought, I don't want to be the one that's analyzing this for the hedge funds. I want to be analyzing this for the public as a journalist. Um, what was that transition for you to go from the, biz- the business of hedge funds to reporting on the industry and business at large? I fell into the hedge fund industry somewhat by accident. Um, I was just out of college. I was looking for a job. I really was not sure what I wanted to do, but I certainly was not pursuing, um, you know, a career in finance. Uh, but I ended up working part time just to make some money answering the phones at a small hedge fund. And, um, 
it was at the, a particular time when the industry was still quite small and very entrepreneurial. And the, the manager of that fund liked me and convinced me to stay. And it was actually an amazing experience to just learn uh, almost in the sort of immersion crash course fashion about that industry. And I did feel like an anthropologist sort of dropped down in the middle of this whirlwind of um, drama and deals and trading. And I mean, it was interesting, but um, I knew pretty quickly that I did not have the right personality for that kind of work. Um, tolerance of risk is a really big part of being a successful <laughs> Uh, trader, especially at a hedge fund that's doing more short-term investing. And that is just not my personality. I am much more of a um, deliberative, thoughtful, long-term thinker. I like to learn everything I can about a problem, probably too much, more than I need to know um, before making a decision or figuring out how to solve the problem. You know, I was the person who would always over-prepare for the test. So, having to make decisions in the market based on small amounts of information uh, and do them really quickly uh, was extremely stressful for me. So I was really unhappy. So, so the decision to, you know, leave that field was not really difficult. I was pretty miserable. Uh, but one thing I was really interested in was writing and it was something I'd been fairly um, good at from an early age. And, um, you know, it's, it was enormously helpful to me in my journalism career to just have this experience in this big money world that is often very uh, opaque to most people. I mean, I feel like I can sort of serve a bit of a public function in just explaining it to people, right. um, you know? Absolutely. I want to talk a lot about your personal financial <clears throat> perspectives. I'm sure you've learned a lot just through your reporting in addition to your own experiences in your own life. But back to Stephen Cohen's story. I mean, he didn't go to jail. He, I read uh, that he's working on his next big you know, venture. He's going to try to get back into the game at some, somehow, some way. And so where does that leave us? Is this, are we just not a society that's equipped to really go after these individuals who are for all intents and purposes criminals. Um, they don't do perp walks. Even during the 2009-2010 financial crisis, uh, we expected so many more people to go to jail and that just never happened because real crimes were committed. So are we going to get there to a place where we actually look at this stuff as legitimate crime that deserves jail time? Well, there was a time when high-level financial criminals were pursued more uh, aggressively for their crimes. And um, many people point out the Enron prosecutions uh, in the 90s. Certainly, there were the Michael Milken, Ivan Bosky cases in the late 80s, early 90s. But definitely, over the last 20 years or so, um, there has been a real erosion in our will or ability or both to pursue high-level financial crime. That is absolutely true. Um, you know, I think the explanation as to why is complicated, but I, I mean, it's it's hard to ignore the fact that the, the people in that industry have amassed, you know, a lot of political influence and a lot of wealth. And it coincides with the period where we've stopped prosecuting them. And, and, and the government is still pretty good at picking off low-level financial criminals. But this came up a lot after the financial crisis because um, 
certainly to the average reader watching the news and getting foreclosed out of their house, it seemed obvious that there was a lot of financial fraud that had occurred at major banks in the U.S. However, not a single senior banker ever even faced prosecution for any of those frauds. Um, during that same period, the government did charge a number of insider traders. But as you pointed out, they never charged Steve Cohen, the one who sort of made most of the money and um, employed many of these people. And if you ask the government why, they would say, well, uh, we just didn't have the evidence. And I, I believe they say that sincerely. But there are many people who believe that they just did not pursue the high-level offenders aggressively enough. And um, I don't see any sign that that problem is going to improve anytime soon, just given the current atmosphere in Washington. As you pursued this story and others, was there ever a time where you felt that your active reporting uh, was putting you in jeopardy, at risk of being threatened or, you know, because this is sensitive stuff. People don't want this information out there necessarily, and you're the one that's exposing it, similar to someone else who's maybe reporting on politics or someone who's a whistleblower in some ways. Did you ever feel concerned about that? I definitely felt a little uh, anxious and aware of the possibility of something like that happening. There were a couple of incidents when I first started out where people sort of on Steve Cohen's behalf said, you, you know, you better watch yourself kind of things to me. And other people warned me and they just said, listen, you're, you, you know, you should really watch, take care. Someone might be going through your garbage. I never saw any evidence of any of those things actually happening, but I did think about it. Um, so it was actually a very stressful period for me. It was also very exciting and fun and interesting and a huge challenge that I enjoyed uh, untangling to sort of do the reporting for the book. But yeah, it, it was it was not a relaxing project, <laughs> if that's fair to say. <laughs> yeah, not, not exactly the word uh, most would use. <laughs> In describing your personal financial philosophy, what are the words you would use if you have a money mantra of sorts? <sighs> conservative. Yeah. Uh, always worrying about what could possibly go wrong in the future. And now that is not very fun sounding, I admit. Um, but I think part of that, that arises just from my background in my career, because when I started working on Wall Street as a hedge fund analyst, um, I, as I mentioned, uh, you know, I kind of got plunked into this industry from nowhere and looked around, and I really did feel a bit like an explorer on another planet. And I was seeing everything with fresh eyes. And um, I just was not yet at that point part of the culture. Uh, so things that maybe seem normal to people who work on Wall Street or trade in the markets every day seemed patently absurd to me. For example, um, I, I remember in the late 90s watching various tech companies. There was a huge internet stock bubble going on at the time. And yeah, there are these companies like pets.com and Qualcomm and Rambus. And you couldn't even really explain what they did. Uh, but they were just shooting up to, to crazy new high prices every day. And everyone was just trading technology stocks. And there was this real kind of go getter, like we're all getting rich atmosphere in the financial press and in the financial industry. And to me, it just seemed a little absurd. And I was constantly saying, yeah, but what's underpinning all this? What is this base? What does pets.com actually do? And I think a lot of people who had just been immersed in that world never stopped to ask those questions. But there I was brand new trying to figure it all out. And it just seemed ridiculous to me. So 
I was a little reluctant. It did it did uh, infuse me with a little bit of skepticism about the stock market and all the hype uh, that goes into it. And I, I think that has actually served me well. I'm sure I have lost some opportunities, but in general, I am not a gambler. And uh, I tend to think about financial things in a very careful, measured, conservative way. And I, I feel that that has been helpful. We're kind of seeing a repeat of a lot of that now, right? Would you say with companies like Snapchat and a lot of the social media platforms, the internet has had a lot of a lot of internet companies, I feel like, get this billion-dollar valuation and they're not even profitable. So how do you see history repeating in some ways? Well, so of course, I should just say I would never give anyone financial advice. But uh, there are many signs of a bubble that are familiar to me, having seen the last bubble. And um, I don't have a good explanation for it other than the fact that the history is really destined to repeat itself. And, um, you know, if we're about to enter into an environment where there's a lot of deregulation going on, I think we can expect even more bubbles and even possible frauds to emerge. Uh, But yes, when I look at some of the tech stock valuations, I think that they don't really make sense on a logical level. I think if something is going on in the market that you would have trouble explaining to an average person, uh, I think that's a sign that there's a problem. And um, I don't know when the reckoning will come, but there, you know, again, there are a lot of tech investors uh, with who, who, you know, who made a lot of money and they are all uh, competing and looking for opportunities and that can sometimes lead to imprudent uh, decisions. So yes, there are definitely signs of that. Not to get too ominous, but I agree <laughs> with you. I totally agree with you. <laughs> the world isn't ending yet, um, but but yeah, yeah. but but um, back to your personal journey, Sheila. I'd love to learn a little bit more about you know how money was introduced to you as a child. I feel like so much of our you know, relationship with money as an adult, our conservatism, our, our risk averseness, our risk tolerance stems from very momentous experiences. Um, and they don't have to be a lot of, you know, experiences, maybe just like one instance. Um, so is there, was there like one very, very, uh, big memory that you have about money growing up? A very predominant uh, just sort of sense I have about my my youth and financial matters is just this this really strong impression that my parents were frugal and bordering on cheapskates sometimes. <laughs> and they're still a bit like that, although they also will occasionally do things that seem reckless to me. But in general, they're pretty, you know, they're pretty money conscious. My mom in particular really brought that into the house. She grew up, uh, you know, in a very modest household where money was extremely tight. So she did not ever have a sense of confidence or comfort. She was always worrying about the future, about not having enough. And, um, you know, my father who was a professional, you know, he was a, he was a corporate executive and did very well, uh, supporting the family, but he always used to say, well, your mother really helps us not to blow all our money because she's so cost conscious. So, um, I really appreciate that actually about her. And another thing that I think was extremely valuable that I had was, um, you know, I grew up with a real expectation from certainly from high school on that I would, uh, have a part-time job and earn my own money anytime it was feasible. And mainly that happened during the summer, but even during college, I was often working part-time during, um, the school year. 
And um, I think at some point that stopped being the model that most kids were following, but it has been enormously helpful to me. I learned so much uh, working as a cashier at a sporting goods store, for example. Um, I, I worked as a part-time copy editor, you know, when I was a college student. And that allowed me to save my own money. It really taught me about saving and spending and balancing a checkbook and all that stuff. And um, I think when you're spending someone else's money all the time, i.e. your parents' money, it really uh, teaches you a very different set of lessons than when you're having to go out and work. You're having to leave, go home early from the party because you have to get up and go to work in the morning. Um, it teaches you something really valuable. And, um, you know, I think everyone should have that experience, even if they don't necessarily have a financial need to do that. When you left the hedge fund world as an analyst, although you were still in, in the younger phase of your career, did you still have a, was a part of you a little concerned or worried or anxious about money? Because as journalists, um, at least, you know, on average, it's not like the most lucrative industry. Um, and Whereas hedge funds, the end is obvious. The end is it's like, mm-hmm. stick with this. You will make a lot of money um, if you survive. Were you reluctant at all because of that? Or did that actually motivate you? you know? Well, that, my parents certainly had that question. Um, and it's a very yeah. valid question. I think what did your father that, and mother say? Yeah, yeah my father, who's from India, he was, he was very worried Um Still, still not quite sure if I've been successful, uh, you know, not going to medical school or whatever he wanted me to do. But um, I mean, I was concerned about it. But to be honest, I was very naive and just did not know exactly what the what the, you know, the earning situation was in journalism. I had a passion for that. I knew that that's what I wanted to do. Uh, It was my second career. So I kind of just attacked it in this way that I probably wouldn't have if it was just the first thing I'd done right out of school. Um, and I was so deeply unhappy in the, in the environment where I was just working for the money. Um, now, uh, that's not to say that having more money wouldn't be nice, but I really learned some valuable lessons there just about personal happiness and just my stress and mental health. And, uh, I would not trade it for anything. I mean, I, my life has just been blessed and I feel really lucky that my Mm career has gone the way it has. But yes, of course, I, I, I left a much more lucrative field. People bring that up to me all the time. And um, I think just the fact that I did that helps me to write about it in a more clear-eyed way, to be honest. What are you looking forward to covering in the years to come in your particular beat? That being, I suppose, all things business um, and the economy. And I know you've written some really important pieces about women in business and women in Wall Street. But what are you? What is sort of the next frontier? Underreported stuff. Well, I feel um, business journalism in general, I think, is just. Um, in such a kind of golden period right now because uh, because of, well, uh, you know, what's happened politically in this country is very distressing to a lot of people. But I, I can see very clearly that it's a, an economic story, actually. And, um, you know, I, I believe the reason we have the, the leadership we have in Washington is because of the economy. Uh, all, all other things aside, I think that um, something has happened in the economy where – you know, you, you do have a small subset of people taking most of the gains and then you have large numbers of people who are losing opportunities. And, um, you know, some of that is the result of the rise of finance and its influence, uh, in our economy. So, so everything going on actually kind of connects back to 
business on some level. Um, so I feel very excited to help just explain that dynamic to people. I don't think, I think a lot of average readers don't necessarily connect the dots between president Trump and economic issues, but I see all that very clearly. So I, I'm very excited to just have the opportunity to explain that and illuminate that for people. Mm. Um, and, and just, just on a pure sort of more selfish level, these stories in that world, the narratives, the characters, the drama, and the lessons to learn are really fascinating and entertaining and important. And um, I just think there's no better time, you know, probably, you know, in history, possibly to have been a business journalist as right now. We will never see the end of this era only because people say it's going to live in books and movies and television shows and series because there's just so much that once these you know, Washington aides are no longer in office or obviously Trump's going to write several books and, um, and, <laughs> you know, Tiffany will probably write a book. I mean, it's just, <laughs> no, we know. Oh, yeah, I look the, forward to that <laughs> Tiffany book. Tell me what was your so money moment to date? Uh, so money meaning, you know, a time in your profession, in your financial life that you just really felt super proud, super accomplished. Intriguing question. Becoming a homeowner was a very exciting moment. I remember, uh, you know, sleeping first, my first night in my husband and my new house and feeling yeah. so peaceful and like everything was okay. And, uh, yeah. So I'm, I'm proud of that for sure. Many people are saying that that is a false version of the American dream, that homeownership is not a good thing, but I'm with you. I am obsessed <laughs> with real estate and I don't know, I don't know what it is, but I, uh, I'm always on street easy. So, <laughs> oh yeah, no, in New York city, it, it is a blessing. I feel grateful every day that I did that when I did. <laughs> Especially in New York city. Right. Because here, yep. I mean, historically, let's be honest, the real estate has been good to the, um, to an owners and investors over the long run. And as they say, you always need a place to live. You do. That's so, comforting to know if nothing yes. else, you can always go to your house and <laughs> a landlord can't kick you out. Exactly. Sheila, what's a habit that you have that helps with your money? Is there something that you do consciously every month or daily? Well, um, a couple of years ago, <laughs> A couple of years ago, my husband uh, connected all of our finances together uh, in Mint, and he started to know every time that I bought something with our credit card. <laughs> and to be honest, that has probably had a positive chilling effect on my spending. I don't know. I can't really take credit for it because it's something that he did, but um, – it has been helpful when I go to Saks and want to splurge on a something like a shirt or whatever. I think, well, he's going to get a little alert that I did this. So <laughs> I really have to want it for that to be worth the scolding I may get from him. And um, I mean, frankly, he's pretty tolerant most of the time, but occasionally he will just raise an eyebrow and say, are you sure? Does so, he have his thing that he buys that is eyebrow raising? <sighs> Uh, I mean, he does, he has his own weaknesses, but my, my clothing shopping is probably outshines his, um, <laughs> occasional purchase of new running shoes. Right. Yeah. Well, you work hard for it, Sheila. You deserve it. You know, that's what I tell him. That, and and tell, tell him I told you. <laughs> 
Okay. I appreciate that. <laughs> Sheila Colehead Carr, thank you so much for coming by. Um, you know, we started on kind of a somber note talking about this uh, crazy human being um, that, you, <laughs> that you wrote a book about, this story that the New York Times called an absolute thriller. I can't wait for the movie. Is that actually going to happen? Because I feel like it could, uh, Yeah. Well, there are there are conversations happening, yes. so hopefully. I had a I had a I had a very good feeling. Um, well, wishing so. you all the continued success, Sheila. Thanks for coming on the show, and we'll be looking for your your byline in the future. Thank you. Thank you. It was great to be here. Thank you so much to Sheila for joining us. Her website is SheilaColehetcar.com and she's also on Twitter at Sheila K. That's S-H-E-E-L-A-H-K. Her amazing book is called Black Edge, Inside Information, Dirty Money, and the Quest to Bring Down the Most Wanted Man on Wall Street. To listen to the episode again and again and again and share it and download it, go to SoMoneyPodcast.com. And while you're there, click on Ask Farnoosh and send me your question for the Friday episodes. Thank you for tuning in, everyone, and I hope your day is so money. 